Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We are in this message series looking at the practical implications of what it means to be a Christian. Now, it is not our business to use this information to try to determine who is and who is not. What is our business is to be clear personally on what Jesus meant when he invited us to follow him and make a commitment to him, and then make our own decisions based on what that means. Our guide has been the book of Colossians, the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, which starts with two words, two simple words, if, then. If you are a Christian, then this is what is true of you. The 17 verses that follow list the identifying features that are present in the life of someone who follows Jesus Christ. And these 17 verses are divided into three major categories with three identifying marks in each category for a total of nine. The first category are the three decisions that a Christian makes. And these decisions are represented by three words that precede the name of Christ in the first four verses. And they all begin with the same letter, the letter W. These are the three with Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. So if you are a Christian, you have discovered the hidden treasure that the entire world is searching for. You've discovered the secret of life. Everyone is looking for the secret of life. They're looking for what they can own or do or maybe ingest to make them feel alive on the inside. But Christians have concluded that the secret of life lies at its source, and that is Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh. And so they decide to be with him. What that means is they decide to attach their life to him. And in doing so, their life is raised, not only in this life, but in the one to come. But that changes what they live for now in this life. They decide to value what heaven values because that's where, that's the second W, where Christ is. They don't waste near as much time and money chasing all of the many dead ends that this world offers. The reason is because they know that the treasure isn't here because Christ is the treasure and he isn't here. And then they decide to wait patiently for the day when, that's the third W word, when Christ shows up and wraps up history and makes all of the wrongs right. Now, like anyone, they would prefer things to work out now, but they don't demand that because they know that they're part of a bigger plan. And they're willing to wait for when Christ returns. And so with these three core decisions in place, Christians then go to work on the implications of these decisions. They put in place three practices. This is the next section of the verses in Colossians 3. Three practices. First of all, the old practice of searching for buried treasure here is put to death. Not just once, but repeatedly, because we tend to keep forgetting that it's not here and we start wrapping our hearts around something here and making it more important than God himself. So we practice over and over again, putting to death the search for buried treasure here. And then the old patterns of using anger and deception to manipulate people are put off and they are replaced with the new patterns, new practices, learning how to love other people. Now, when we talk about love, we're not talking about the sentimental emotion that we often think of, but an intelligent grasp as to how we can really be of help to someone else. Now, these patterns do not come easily. The old patterns run deep. And so it takes a lot of practice, and it requires a great deal of help to begin to gain traction in these patterns and to begin to grow. 
And the reason is that not only do you face an internal battle as a Christian with your own past and your own heart, but you gain an unseen enemy who is set on your destruction and your discouragement, and that is Satan. You have now entered into an invisible war that, quite honestly, you are unmatched for. Now, thankfully, Christ, the one that you've attached your life to, has far more power than Satan or your past patterns. But in order for the power of Christ to have any real effect and be of any use in your life, you need to let his power flow freely into your life on a daily basis. The key word in the final three verses, the final section of Colossians 3, is this word let. Positively, the word let means to allow. Stated negatively, it means to not prevent. So what is it exactly that we are to not prevent and to allow to enter into our lives? Well, it's speaking of the power of Christ. You see, we can make these three decisions, and we can begin to work on these three practices, but without help from Jesus, we're not going to be able to make much progress. We just simply don't have the power. And this is essential to understand this is what powers the life of an authentic Christian. And the power of Christ that is available to help us comes in three forms. There is, the first of all, the peace of Christ. And then there are the words of Christ. And then there is the name of Christ. These three power sources are key to propelling us and growing us as followers of Christ. Now, like any power... Christ's power must be connected or be plugged in in order for it to have any effect. And each power has a particular point of connection, a place in our lives that allows the power of Christ to flow into our lives personally. And at this connection point, we must make the decision on a daily basis to let his power free reign into our lives, flow into our lives. The let that allows the power of Christ's peace to help us, to give us strength, is the word rule. Or as it would be stated in the original language that the New Testament is written in, this is the way the sentence would have been heard, is let rule Christ's peace in your hearts. The let for Christ's word, the second source of power, is the word dwell. Or as it would be said, let dwell Christ's words in you richly. And the let for Christ's name, the power of Christ's name, is live. Or as it says in English, do everything. Let live Christ's name in everything that you do. Now, these three together are kind of like the three prongs of a plug that, that allows us to access fully the power of Christ. Now, all of the electrical power in the world does no good if the appliance that's designed to be plugged into it is not plugged in. In a similar way, Christ's vast power, which is not impersonal electricity, is his personal presence. But his vast power does us no good if we will not let his power have access into our lives. You know, his peace is there and has tremendous ability to calm us in the most dire of circumstances. But if we won't let it rule in our hearts, his peace is of no use to us. It will not help us. His word is there, it's present, it's available for us, but if we don't let it dwell in us richly, then we will gain no benefit from it. 
His name is the name that is above every name. There is no name that is more powerful than the name of Jesus Christ in all of creation. But if we don't understand how to use it and use it on a daily basis, well, then it doesn't matter how great his name is. It's not available to us because we're not letting the power make contact with our life. And we're going to look at each of these in turn, but today we're going to turn our attention to the first prong of these three prongs of power, and that is Christ's peace. Here's what it says in Colossians 3, verse 15, the first verse in this final section. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, if you are worried or restless or agitated on the inside about the future, that will power down any effort that you are putting into rearranging the practices of your life. If you are anxious, agitated, you will return most likely to the recent patterns of searching for buried treasure here. And you will go back to the old familiar ways of trying to manage the people in your life rather than love them. Because whenever we're in turmoil on the inside, we, we, we go back to what is familiar, what is comfortable to us. And it will just power down any effort you're making in trying to put on these new patterns and to begin to grow in your relationship with Christ. Now, Jesus has the kind of peace that can rule a heart, even in the most difficult of circumstances. But in order for that to become a reality, we need to let that peace rule in our hearts. We have to make the decisions to allow that peace to rule. How do we do that? Well, the word rule here means to be the referee over. And a referee applies the rules of a contest on the field of play. What's the field of play that's being talked about here? It's our hearts. Our hearts are not just our emotions, but also our thoughts that drive many of our emotions and produce them. And so what this is saying is, let the peace of Christ blow the whistle on your heart whenever your thoughts are out of bounds. Allow his peace to rule. Now, like in any sporting event that has referees, the players must first understand and agree to the rules. Without that, the referee can blow the whistle all he or she wants. The referee's whistle will have no effect. It will have no power. There has to be an understanding of what the rules are of the particular match that's being played in order for the whistle to mean anything. And it's the same for us. If if the whistle of Christ's peace is going to blow on our lives whenever we're stepping out of bounds and heading into areas where he will not give us peace, if we don't understand where those boundaries are and if we don't agree to those boundaries, then the whistle of Christ's peace will have no power. It will have no effect in our lives. So what are the rules that apply to the peace of Christ? Well, I want to offer three to you this morning. The first one is the team rule. The team rule. There is a big difference in professional baseball between the two major leagues, the American League and the National League. Now, just by looking at a baseball game, you wouldn't be able to see this difference, probably. The players look very much the same on both leagues. They use the exact same equipment. The fields they play in, play on look very similar. The infield is identical. The outfield is somewhat different, but very similar. But there, there's a big difference, and the, the difference is Rule 5.11. It was adopted by the American League in 1973. And that rule that the American League plays by, but not the National League, says that a player known as a designated hitter, or DH for short, is allowed to bat in the place 
of the pitcher in the rotation, the batting rotation. And that one rule changes a great deal of the game. It changes a lot of strategy in how the game is played. And so the umpires, the officials, officiate the game based on the rules of the home team, the the field that the game is being played on. And by joining a team, either in the National League or the American League, the players agree to play by the rules of that league. Now, I say this because a similar thing is true for an authentic Christian. An authentic Christian has decided to join a league, not just follow Jesus. This is part of that decision. The league is called the body of Christ, the church. That's why it says in this verse, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Like in baseball, you can't join the league as an individual. And so you can't come up with the peace of Christ just all on your own. You join the larger league by joining a specific team in that league, just like in baseball. So authentic Christians are not just individuals who are following Christ all by themselves. And therefore, if they try to come up with the peace of Christ all by themselves, they will, they will find there is very little available. Authentic Christians have joined the overall body of Christ by attaching themselves to a team, a church that is part of that league, part of the body of Christ. Now, you can't see this by looking at a person. Just like looking at a baseball player, you know, they look all the same. The field of play is the same for everyone else. You know, Christians drive on the same freeways. They go to the same places of work. They shop in the same, same grocery stores. You, you can't tell the difference just by looking. But on the inside, authentic Christians live by a very different set of peace rules than the people of this world do. Jesus referred to this in John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. He's talking about the fact that he's about to return to heaven. But what he is going to leave is peace. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled troubled, and do not be afraid. So Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to leave peace here. I, I, I've come to bring peace to you. Now, please understand that it's a very different set of rules or very different kind of peace than the peace that this world offers. You see, every culture throughout history in the world offers rules of peace. They put out their own peace rules. Now, they're very rarely written down, but they're clearly understood. They are agreed upon understanding of the conditions that are necessary for for us to rest or be at peace on the inside. And we all grow up learning these rules as we watch our parents go through turmoil and peace and turmoil and peace, and we get to know the wider culture, and we, we begin to understand what are the conditions that I must try to get in my life in order for me to be at peace. If the peace conditions of the culture and family that we grew up in are not met, then the internal whistle of anxiety blows, telling us that we are out of bounds and what exactly we must do now to get back into the boundaries of the rules of peace of the culture that we grew up in. For example, in the U.S., one of the major rules, the conditions of peace, is that peace occurs whenever you have enough resources. Or, as we like to say, whenever you're set for life. 
And so what tends to happen based on those rules is our sense of peace rises and falls based on the resources that we have or do not have. But Christ has a very different rule on this matter. Christ says peace occurs whenever you attach your life to the one who owns everything. That's a very different approach to the resource problem. I mean, we're all going to struggle at different points with resources. And either we're going to be at peace whenever the resources begin flowing in, or we're going to be at peace when we realize that we have decided to attach ourselves to the one that is the key to all the resources that we need, the one whose hand is on the spigot of all the resources of our life. Now, that's a very different source of peace. And that's why peace is very fragile in our culture, because resources come and resources go. Economies go up and economies go down. Peace goes up and peace goes down. Another rule in the U.S. when it comes to peace is that peace occurs whenever you succeed. So if whatever your objective is, maybe it's a career objective, maybe it's a family objective, but whenever you reach whatever that line of success is, then the idea is then you can be at peace. Until then, you're just going to be in turmoil. But when you succeed, finally when you get to whatever that is you're trying to accomplish, then you can rest, then you can be calm on the inside. But again, that's, that's a very hard thing to come up with. And once you arrive there, you discover that you can be calm for a short period of time, and then there's the next thing that you need to do to succeed. But Christ's rule on peace says that peace occurs whenever you do your part. Whether it works out or not, as soon as you get clear on what God's assignment is for you, and you do that with diligence, then you can be at peace. You can go to sleep at night, even if everything's not working out, because you are doing your part. That's a very different rule. The last example, the U.S. rule says peace occurs when people like you. Or the way it's most commonly referred to right now is you're, you're cool. But Christ says, no, peace occurs whenever you love people. It's not based on the love that's coming this way. It's based on the love that's going this way. Now, that's a very different way to come up with peace. It's a very different set of rules. You see, peace doesn't just happen. It has rules. It has conditions. And Christ's rules are very different than the rules of whatever culture you grew up in, whether it was this one or another one. And Christ's rules are learned the same way we learn the rules that we grow up in. They're learned in a culture. They're learned in a community. They're learned as we join his team, as we become a part of his church, and together We work on learning these new rules so that we can be at peace under those conditions, not the conditions that we grew up thinking that we needed in order to be at peace. So that's the team rule. Christ's peace cannot be be obtained all by itself. We must join his team, the body of Christ. The second rule is the scenario rule. After the crucifixion of Christ... We read this about the disciples in John 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, now let me pause there, this is the first day of the week, Sunday, the day that Jesus rose out of the grave. He had risen that morning. Word had already begun to spread, but the disciples had yet to see him, and so they were not really buying this yet. So this is the day it's referring to. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Remember what had just happened? Their master had been arrested and crucified. 
Jesus then came and stood among them and said, what? Peace be with you. Now, this wasn't the only time Jesus said this. On many occasions, Jesus would appear at a moment of turmoil. One time it was in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when a storm had suddenly come up and it looked like they were about to drown. And Jesus came walking on the water and said, peace be with you. So he would say this often. What he's basically saying is, relax everybody, I'm here now. You can be at peace. I'm here. You're not alone. Now, what did the presence of Jesus change in this particular moment for the disciples? Well, I think it changed all of the scenarios that they were running in their own minds. I mean, before his death, it was clear if you read the story of the Gospels that they had been running scenarios about where they might end up in the leadership structure on his leadership team once he had defeated Rome and set up his new government, which is what they fully expected him, the Messiah, to do. But then he was arrested, tried, crucified. And after his death, they were running some very different scenarios, and I wonder what my position will be in the leadership of the government. That changed their scenarios. Now they were running scenarios about How exactly will I be captured? In what way will I be tortured? And how will I die a horrible death? You see, one of the primary activities of our mind is scenario creation. If you were to see a transcript of your thoughts, you would be amazed at what a high percentage of them are just trying to run scenarios about the future. And that's not a problem. That's how we analyze and we try to figure out, you know, what the current facts are and make decisions about the future. But when we run our scenarios, we tend to use two pieces of input to create our scenarios. We consider our past experience, what we have seen, what we've experienced, what we've observed, and we take that data and all that we've learned about the patterns of life and the way things are, and then the second piece of information we use to create our scenarios is we just then naturally project what might happen based on what we know of the facts and what we know of the past. So we kind of take what's been happening, and we just continue the graph out. You know, if things are heading down, we just assume, well, this is going to crater in about three months. But if we change this, and we think, well, this is what happens when you do this, and then, then things should get better. And so we just create scenarios based on our own personal past experience, and then we just naturally project those. Those are the two ways, the two pieces of information we use to create our scenarios. And this is what the disciples were doing. The disciples had seen messiahs in the past come and go. Messiah wannabes. Individuals rise up and say, I'm the messiah. They were not, and they were arrested, and they were killed, and they knew what happened to the followers of those people. Those followers were often tracked down, and they too were killed. So that's, that's the scenarios they were running. They'd seen this before. Their past experience told them, we know what's coming next. That's why they were in this room, behind locked doors, for fear of the Jews. They knew what was going to happen. That was the scenarios, and they were accurate. But then Jesus showed up, and that changed everything. That changed the scenarios from worry to peace. Why? Well, God is now in the room, and that makes a big difference in what might happen. Whenever Christ is present, You have to add two new pieces of data to your scenario creation. There's more going on now than just 
whatever your past experience thinks might work and whatever you naturally project. No, the additional data you need to add to this scenario that you're trying to create is the past history of what God has done. There's a long history, many stories of, of God doing the unusual and God turning the impossible around and making it possible. So if you're going to run a scenario and God is present, well, then that just expands the number of things that might happen. And so when you do your projection, you can't just do natural projection because now you have the supernatural presence of God. You have to do some supernatural projection. What, what might God do that would be above and beyond anything natural in this situation? That's why you can be at peace because you can create different scenarios now. Now, I'm like you in that I spend a lot of time and mental energy running scenarios, and oftentimes they drift into the fear and the worry part of the scenario creation. One example was about three months ago, I was working in the office on Saturday back in February when I heard the sound of sirens, which that's not unusual on this property because there's a firehouse right down the road there, and so we hear sirens going by all the time. But in this case, they didn't go past. They stopped. And I thought it sounded like they stopped on our property. So I stepped out of the office and saw three fire trucks in our parking lot. And one of the firemen hauling a hose from the truck this direction. Now that is not a peace-generating sight. <laughs> well, upward basketball games were being played on the site, and there was probably a couple hundred people or so that are on the site at that point. And the vendor that we were using for food on that day had accidentally started a fire in our outdoor kitchen back there. And as the fire grew, the propane tanks under the, the cooking area started heating up and hissing, and it sounded like they were about to blow. Now, thankfully, we had some very quick-thinking coaches and parents that evacuated the kids and the families all the way to the parking lot on that side of the property. And the fire department got here and extinguished the fire very quickly. But two of the workers uh, of this vendor were injured and were taken by ambulance to the hospital. And as the ambulance pulled away, you know, I got word that it sounded like one of them was in, was in pretty bad shape. So when the fire trucks finally, you know, finished their work and cleaned up everything uh, and they left, I began running scenarios. I first began running death scenarios. What, what if this vendor, what if this worker dies? And then I began to run lawsuit scenarios. And then I began to run fire inspection scenarios. And then I began to run angry parent scenarios. And at that point, the peace of Christ whistle blew in my heart. I said, hey, hey, time out. Now, just to be clear, it was not audible. But I had a thought, and the thought was, you're, you're not thinking and adding in the presence of Christ in this moment and in this situation. You're just taking your past experience and the data of what's happened, and you're naturally projecting what you've seen happen in many situations like this before, or heard of happening in many situations like this before. But you, you've got to add Christ to the mix. You've got to add the presence of God here. Now, to be honest, I am too analytical of a person to just simply leave it at, well, Jesus is going to work it out. That, honestly, I wish that could just help me. Just the thought of, you know, Jesus is present, be at peace. But I, I can't just say, Jesus is here, I'm good, I'm going back to work. 
I, I have to come up with replacement scenarios for those worry scenarios. And those don't come naturally. The worry scenarios, oh, that just that fires. That just pops all over the place in my mind. The Christ is present scenarios, I've got I've to think about that. And so I thought, I thought, given what I know of what God has done throughout history in the past and what he might do in this situation, let's, let me try to imagine what God might be doing in this situation. What is Christ going to do here? Now, you never know what God will do. You can't create these scenarios as a demand that God will do what you're imagining might happen. You can't then set your hearts on these as an expectation because God will do what he will do. He will not take orders and do what you want him to do. You can pray about these scenarios, but the purpose of these scenarios is to, to add more data to your thinking and your heart than your normal worry scenarios. And so I, I have to get specific in creating these scenarios, and so I came up with a couple scenarios that day. One scenario was, well, about this worker that was in critical condition. I thought, well, you know, I, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know this, this man very well. But maybe God's wanting to do something, do a deep work in his life at this point. And I, I just know for me, from my own experience, it's often some of the harder parts of my life that I look back and I'm grateful for now. I wasn't then, but I'm grateful for now because those have been key points of growth and depth for me. So I thought, I, I don't know, but I wonder if maybe God is, is trying to, to get a hold of this man's life in a deeper way. So I imagined what that might look like. And then I thought, well, maybe God wants us to, my second scenario is maybe God wants us to improve something about our overall safety plan so that we're better prepared for the future. And we've worked really hard at coming up with safety scenarios and trying to figure out how to make this campus as safe as possible, but there's always room for improvement. Maybe God knows some things that we need to shore up. And maybe that's some of the good that he's intending out of this. And that's, honestly, that's about as far as I could go. Created those two. But as I replaced my oh no scenarios with the Christ scenarios, Christ's peace began to replace the knot in my stomach and the worry in my heart. Now, to be honest, it didn't go away completely, but it, it diminished. The waters of my heart went from raging storm to kind of a bubbling brook a little bit more. And now, three months later, I can see the hand of God at work through this fire. The worker who was injured recovered fully. And I don't know all of what God is doing in that man's life, but I know from what he has said that he was deeply moved by the love of this church and our concern for him. And he's talked about, you know, some deeper God-type things. I don't know what God's going to do with that, but, but something is going on there. And this coming week, we're running a, a new gas line natural gas line to the outdoor kitchen, and that will be safer than propane tanks. Now, if I could have just been transported on that Saturday in February, three months forward, then I would have, oh, I could have, I could have just calmed down. I, I would have been able to be at peace. I could have seen the reason to be at peace. But of course, we can't see the future. I mean, we are this blind about the future. We have no idea what's happening a minute from now. We can only imagine it. But authentic Christians are those who access the power of Christ's peace by making it a practice 
of doing their imagining about the future by adding a heavy dose of what Christ might do, rather than just, oh no, what do I think is going to happen? So that's rule number two, the scenario rule. The last rule is, rule number three is the grace rule. In the New Testament, peace has a buddy, a partner. These two words, grace and peace, come together over and over again. In fact, 18 times, often at the beginning of a New Testament book, we read something like this. This is the example, Titus 1 verse 4 says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, here's the pair, grace and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, they're, they're paired together so often, it's pretty clear that it's really impossible to have peace without grace. They come together. Now, most Christians will tell you that God's grace is, is His forgiveness for our sin, and that is true. But that's only just a small part of what God's grace does. The words in the Bible that are translated grace in English point to something that's, that's much bigger and much more active and dynamic than just the forgiveness of sins, which is huge, but it's bigger than that. In Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in, the word for grace means to God bending down to create something of beauty. In Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, the word grace means to cause joy. Now, what's most interesting about grace is the setting in which it bends down to create beauty and to bring joy. Grace occurs only in the context of tremendous difficulty, of great difficulty. That's why we describe the movements, for example, of an athlete or a dancer as being graceful. What we're saying is they're not doing what's easy, but they're making it look easy. Their strength and their, their power and their skill is allowing a difficult act to be graceful. By their strength and by their skill, they're doing the seemingly impossible. This is what God does. This is what His grace does. Not with a basketball or a dance floor, but with sin and with brokenness and with pain. Grace is the muscle and skill of God that does the seemingly impossible. He can turn something ugly into something beautiful. He can turn wrong that is done into something that is good. He can bend down and take broken, shattered messes and create a thing of beauty out of it. In fact, most of God's best work occurs not in the stage where everything is new and pristine and untouched and unmarred. No, some of God's best and most amazing work occurs in the renewal stage, after something's been broken into pieces. Now, you and I, we don't have that much skill. We don't have that much power. When we destroy our lives, when we destroy maybe someone else's life, we can't put it back together again. And that's why we lose peace whenever things break. You know, when there's a break in, in a relationship, well, that just sends us spinning. When there's a moral break, when we sin, when we fail, and we, we can't seem to get, get, get tra on track again, we, we just spiral into despair. We don't know what we can do about this. We don't have the power to change ourselves. 
And when our dreams break, we are in tremendous conflict and turmoil on the inside. And that's why in this broken world, peace is a very fragile commodity. Because things keep breaking, and our peace is shattered with it. But grace is the muscle, the strength, the power of God that can compensate for any circumstance and any weakness. Now, I know that's hard to see. And it's hard to believe, especially if some part of your life is broken right now. It's hard to imagine how anything can be rebuilt out of this. And that is why peace is something that we have been called to in one body. That's why peace can't be arrived at individually. We, we get to see the grace of God at work in other people's lives as we participate in His church. You know, all around this room are individuals that God is rebuilding. There are marriages that are being renewed that look like they were over. There are individuals that are recovering from bankruptcies. There are people who are rebuilding their lives after having been victims to tremendous abuse. There are those who had their whole future wiped out and looked like they were about to die because of addictions. That God has begun to put some very different things together for them. And as we see this, we get a sense of what God might be able to do with our brokenness. Now, to be honest, you can't see this just by sitting here. You know, people don't wear signs that say how they used to be broken. You can't see that. You have to get involved in a church. You have to be a part of the body of Christ in order to see this. You have to get to know people. And that's why whenever you struggle, whenever things break, the tendency is to withdraw and pull back into your own personal little world. But that's the moment to step even more into the church because there's a chance you'll get to hear a story, you'll get to see someone whose life was broken in ways yours was. Yours, yours is right now and, and see how God rebuilt them. So let me ask, are, are you at peace if we could see the inside of your heart, if you could see the inside of your heart right now as, as a body of water, would, would it be still? Would it be at rest? Or would there be white caps and waves and turmoil and rapids? Are you at peace? If not, let Christ blow the whistle whenever you try to go it alone. Let him blow the whistle whenever you start running scenarios that ignore the presence of Christ in this scenario. And let him blow the whistle whenever all you can see are the facts of brokenness and none of what God's grace can do to rebuild. So I want us to read this verse together as I wrap up today. This is Colossians 3.15. We'll go ahead and project it on the screen behind here. So let's read this together, Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we see reasons all around us for our hearts to be in turmoil, not in peace. Many times we wake up in the middle of the night 
churning on the inside, thinking about what is coming or what has just happened. And as our lives and our thoughts are drained by anxiety and worry and turmoil, we are drained of the power to work on the practices that you have called us to work on. So Jesus, we thank you for your peace, the peace that you left here, a very different kind of peace. And we, we need that peace. Just this coming week, if we were to be able to enter this week with a sense of peace and calm, the, what we could accomplish with your help and how we could love people would dramatically increase. But if we get into our own heads and our own minds of worry and anxiety, we're, we're not going to be able to do what you call us to do. So we ask that you would help us to let your peace rule in our hearts. Give us ears to hear your whistle blow when we're out of bounds, when we try to go it alone rather than as a part of the team, the body of Christ, whenever we're, we're running scenario after scenario of disaster and not factoring you in at all. Whenever we, we are just looking at the facts and not what your grace can do. We thank you for your peace and we ask that you would help us to gain your peace. May we let your peace rule in our hearts. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.